Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. The interview you'll hear today was recorded on June 29th, 2023. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. This is Drew Taylor, once again joined by Charles Hood. Charles, how you feeling today? I feel great, Drew. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited about this interview, about this guest. Um, yes. Yeah? Yes. We've got uh, Kittredge himself. We've been obsessed with Kittredge since the first movie came out all the way back in 1996. We've got Henry Cerny who uh, was Kittredge in the original movie and then returned in the most recent, of course, now playing exclusively in theaters, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We wanted to maybe throw to a clip from the first movie just to, you know, get people, remind people who Kittredge is. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Let's uh, let's give him some, some classic Kittredge. All right, here we go. This is uh, from the original Mission Impossible, which is available now on Paramount+. It's gone black, Barnes. He's under until he decides to surface. Look, we can use somebody at the embassy and bother local authorities. We can cut off his transportation. What can't. can we do, Barnes? Put a guy at the airport. How many identities do you think Hunt has? How many times has he slipped past customs? And how many countries? These guys are trained to be ghosts. We taught them to do it, for Christ's sake. Well, what do you suggest? Let's not waste time chasing after him. Just make him come to us. Everybody has pressure points, Barnes. You find something that's personally important to him and you squeeze. Kittredge, I love it. I mean, he is just, his delivery, Henry's delivery is so distinct and amazing. The way he says, like, articulates every word. It's so good. You find something that's personally important to him and you squeeze. (laughs) The best. The best. It's so good. Um, so yeah, Kittredge is back. And when we heard that news, we were out of our minds excited for uh, the new movie. We found that that news came out like two years ago now, but it was just blew our minds that Christopher McCrory brought Kittredge back. So we've got Henry Cerny to talk to this week, but I have to say, before we get into our interview with Henry, please stick around at the end of this episode, because we've got another little bonus interview from the world premiere in Rome. So we do have another little something with a couple of the actors uh, who are not Henry uh, that are, uh, it's a good little uh, bonus for everybody. Wait, there are actors in this movie who are not Henry. 
Yeah, I know. It's disappointing. But there are other actors in the All right. movies. All right. what, yes, listen, I'll sorry. take your word on it. Point, but yeah. this is, I mean, this is like a murderer's row of just amazing. It's so many great actors and there's so many great characters in this movie. It's an ensemble and it's, you know, yeah, it's great to talk to so many people. So we've got so many of these little interviews that we collected in Rome. And so it's just great to, to, to you know, spread it out and, and get people all these goodies. You know what I mean? Uh, but before we get into Henry Cerny, we just have a couple of things to explain before we get into it. Charles, do you want to? Yes. Kick us off. Well, we talk about Clear and Present Danger, which is a Jack Ryan movie starring Harrison Ford and directed by Philip Noyce that uh, Henry was in before he was in Mission Impossible. And so we we do get into that. He talks about that uh, as well, uh, which is a fun. It's another Paramount title. And it's a we love those Jack Ryan movies as well. But uh, and then also uh, we should clarify, we, we, we bring up Skywalker Ranch. You want to tell everybody who, what Skywalker Ranch is? Oh, absolutely. Skywalker Ranch is a is a ranch uh, in Marin County, California, where George Lucas had his production facilities. So ILM was there for a long time and Skywalker Sound and all of these amazing kind of technical um, things are up there. I think they still do a lot of re-recording up there. And yeah, so that's what Skywalker Ranch is. It's a wonderful place. Have you ever been there, Charles? I've never been. Have you? I have. I have. It's oh, a, man. It is, it is a that lovely is awesome. place. Yeah, it's that it's really cool. beautiful, and um, yeah, I can see why people love making movies up there because it is really it, it, you just are totally ensconced in the the creative process, which is what we love. You yeah, know, we love that creative process. So. Yeah, it's cool. Like George Lucas built that what after the first or second Star Wars movie? I mean, back in the eighties, is that when he built it? Yeah, I think he, yeah he built it in the eighties, and yeah, it's um it's really special. So yeah, that's, that's cool. what Skywalker Ranch is. Awesome. And then the last thing is uh, we bring up Paula Wagner. And Paula Wagner was a producer on the first three Mission Impossible movies. And so she was Tom Cruise's producing partner at the time. And so Henry brings up Paula Wagner. So we wanted to clarify who she is as well, because he tells a a funny story. Well, he he retells because he's told that story publicly before. But we get into it a little bit more, which is fun. But uh, I think that's all everybody needs to know for this interview. And let's get into part one of our chat with Henry Cerny. So we will be back with part two. So this will just wet your whistle and come on back. Well, Henry, uh, we have wanted you on the show for years. So this is a huge thrill. Me too. For me yeah, too. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> you kind of played a version of Kittredge before Kittredge in Clear and Present Danger, right? That was kind of the trial run, I feel. You know what? Uh, it it kind of was. Yeah, I mean, Paramount did both pictures, clearly. Yeah. And um, Brian De Palma had me come in, and obviously they dug what, what happened in um, Clear and Present. But yeah, kind of the same character, bureaucrat. Um, somebody who's concerned about a lot of things. His shareholders are the American people and his bosses and, and uh, just gets, gets really miffed when somebody does what they're not <laughs> supposed to do under his watch. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty kind of the same guy. That performance that you as Kittredge is just so specific. The way that you speak as Kittredge, like how did that, how did that come about? Like where, where did that come from? I'm classically trained, you know. Um, uh, three years at the uh, at the conservatory in Montreal, 
Uh, and my first 10 years were Shakespeare and new plays on the stage and all that stuff. And I've always considered myself, I thought English is a second language for me. I was raised in, the, in, a, in an immigrant household, Polish people. And, you know, my, my parents were from Poland and Polish was my first language. So I've always felt somewhat insecure about my use of the English language. And so maybe because of that, I, uh, I worked a little harder on being more... Um, understandable <laughs> yeah but it, it's it's a totally unique like the the way you kind of draw out i know i consider that, myself yeah. the frank sinatra of uh of uh, thriller language <laughs> actually i don't i just i do now that just came up um yeah it, it goes way back probably to the first time i was on stage and i've never really told this story this is an anecdote of of maybe how i got to start talking loudly and clearly in theaters. Um, I was terrified that I would screw up the, uh, for dolts, the cantor won't determine what's best to rid us of our vermin line in the, in the Pied Piper in uh, fifth grade. So I worked my butt off uh, so that I could say that line if I was thrown out of a plane. Um, and, and during the production, there was wrestling going, you know, it was kind of restless, the audience watching their kids. And I felt everything settle down when it was my turn. That's the only part of the stanza that I remember there was more to it. And at the end of it, there was a kind of a quiet in the room. And I go back to that moment. And of course, one romanticizes every memory each time you remember it. But there was a sense of juice. I can't, you know, I was going to say power, control, whatever. It was a sense of juice that I felt at the end of that. And I have a feeling that's where the hook happened. That's where this body felt that it it belonged. I fought being an actor for decades. Um, but this seemed to tell me that it was going to do it no matter what. Wow. Can you talk about getting recruited uh, by De Palma for that first movie? We had him on the show and he was a real character and we absolutely yeah, adored he him. So. He is, he's <laughs> yeah. a real character. Yeah. So I was in Brazil uh, shooting um, this thing called Jenny Papo with uh, a Bocho, Patrick Bocho. And uh, I got the call that Brian had decided that I should be his Kittredge. And I was in such a lousy state of mind in Brazil. Probably too many caipirinhas or no, not really. I hadn't slept for some reason or other. I just couldn't sleep in Brazil. Maybe it's because the atmosphere in Rio. I don't know, but I couldn't sleep, and I was just like, oh no. So my, you know, my reps called me and gave me the news. Oh, Brian wants you to come in and do his kitridge, and I said, I don't think I can. And they said, Yes, you can. You will <laughs> get some sleep or get no sleep, but you are doing uh, kitridge in the very first Mission Impossible. And I was thrilled. Deep down, I was thrilled. I just didn't feel I had the chops at that point. I mean, Clear and Present came very quickly for me. I had done a thing called Boys of St. Vincent the, uh, in Canada, and Philip Noyce had seen it at the Telluride Film Festival, and it did very well at the film festival. So that helped me get Clear and Present. But I was in a rehearsal for Clear and Present seconds after I had been down there to audition for uh, Mindy Marin. Uh, and I was I was convinced they got the wrong guy. They were going to fire me anyway. So that happened real quick. But they didn't fire me and went on, did all right. And so when I got the call for Mission Impossible to do Kittredge, A, I was thrilled because my brother and I were huge fans of the show. Loved it. And the idea that 
this little guy from West Toronto who happened every once in a while to to do something somewhat remarkable on the screen or on the stage gets a chance to intone your mission should you choose to accept it <laughs> around the world was off the charts crazy for us we we were just we we couldn't believe it that was just i mean it's really kitschy but it's really it was a great deal of fun that um i tried not to you know let that cloud me in terms of what one needed to do but it was that part of it was thrilling so anyway when I got the call, they wanted me to come in and do Kittredge. I set up a meeting at the CIA because clear and present was so quick. And basically, I had to rely on whatever I could pick up in the time I had to present uh, Philip Noyce and Harrison with a usable character. So this time I thought, well, I've got a chance to do my homework. I'm going to fly out there, see if I can get some people to talk to me. So I spent a couple of days there gathering information about how they did stuff, what the deal was. I'd read the script for, for Mission Impossible. I thought, well, I can come in and, you know, maybe flesh this out a little bit this time. I'm not, I kind of know a little bit more about what I'm doing. I know how the Hollywood machine works. And that was a surprise to me in the first one. So after I go over the, uh, oh, no, I can't do this. Oh, yes, I am doing it. I better pull my socks up and, and get to work. And, and went to the CIA and talked with some people. And they were thrilled, of course, because they'd seen Clear and Present and they all loved it. I came back to the first rehearsal. I came to the first rehearsal with all these suggestions hmm. about how my, one might alter this to mirror the actuality of the situation. <laughs> and uh, that was very funny. That turned out to be very funny and not so funny. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Thank you very much, Henry, for doing all that homework. Now, let's set that aside <laughs> and start working on the script. <laughs> oh, that was good. But anyway, it gave me, it gave me some great uh, backstory and, uh, and an idea of how things work. Well, who, who were you talking to at the CIA that was like, yeah, I'll... I can't remember who. I can't tell you. That's It's, it's classified. Okay. That's, that's classified. Okay. It wasn't Donald Rumsfeld. Right. I'm not sure if he was there or what, but no, it, it was I, some higher ups. And of course, they'll tell you what they want to tell. They're going to tell you everything, but they'll, you know, they'll, they'll let you know what, what, what kind of goes on, what an officer is, what an agent is, what, you know, all that stuff. Well, in the first movie, you're sharing scenes with Dale Dye. Wasn't he a big military advisor guy for a lot of these movies? He was. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was there for, you know, this would. But again, this is not an expose. This is not an expose. It's not a documentary. This is a discussion of right and wrong and how to pursue uh, a situation where you find yourself um, having to deal with an option of doing one thing or another and who do you do it for and all, you know, where, where, where do you sit morally in, uh, in a situation where you're stuck between a rock and a hard place? Uh, it, it has, you know, it, it has elements of how that's done, uh, actually. But again, like CSI, you know, the idea that you get your forensics, you get your DNA sample back in 24 hours is a joke. You know, this takes weeks. <laughs> or back in the day it did, so, uh, so there's a lot of artistic license. We'll be back with more from Henry Cerny after the break. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. 
Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Well, in your first two movies, you have intense showdowns with Harrison Ford and Tom Cruise. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, compare and contrast those. That is two that is moments. that is beyond cool. That is that is uber cool. <laughs> uh, that is uber cool. First of all, you know, to work with Harrison, he was again. He might be at the top of his game now, but I, I'm in a rehearsal with him minutes after auditioning for Mindy, and I'm you know doing this thing for CBS called Ultimate Betrayal, and then now I'm in Hollywood opposite Harrison and Dean Jones and James Earl Jones and everybody else and and, and Willem in the room is like, okay, what's going on here, folks? Uh, just don't get fired. And then Philip looks at me and goes, no, he's too young. I think he's too young. What do we do? And I thought they were going to fire me because when he put me beside my contemporaries, I was I was too young. I looked too young. So we grayed his hair. And, and this is this is about uh, clear and present. We're talking about Mission Impossible. Anyway, this leads into it. So in terms of going up with Harrison, w- that was my first experience of doing a scene with an incredibly good star, an incredibly generous star, and then seeing it at the premiere. I was gobsmacked at, at, at how they had compiled the elements, torn the sound apart, put the sound back together. And that computer scene, uh, you know, it was the first kind of computer battle uh, yeah. in cinema. That, that back and forth. You, get, you get the, he gets the piece of paper or whatever. And yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You don't have one of these, do you, Jack? And the writing in it, the the lines that those fantastic writers give their actors and, uh, it was it, for me. It was a you know it was a gobsmacking, eye-opening experience of what you do and what they do after you do it to augment it, focus it, and give it the seventy-foot-wide juice it demands for the cinema. So what I what I was thrilled with that as I is it I didn't pale. You know, whatever I brought to them did not pale. They used it well. They they augmented it. They, they It was a great scene. And so going into mission, I felt more at home in that environment of it's going to be big. So you better know your stuff. Get out of the way. Know your particulars and just sit there and deliver. And with Tom, I consider Harrison, you know, somebody with a wide angle. Tom has a has a much more of a zoom lens. He's focused, man. And and so it's to a certain extent, it makes the other actor's job so much easier when the person opposite you, of course, is laser focused on what their intent is and is fantastic at trying to execute that. So you just have to listen and respond, basically. Although we got the script a few days before, and then there were changes the day before. And of course, I had reams, uh, and Tom had to look this way and that way, and then talk about the people in the room. So that was pretty bizarre. And Brian Brian was very interesting in that, I, he, he, from my point of view, he, he really liked watching the scene from Video Village. Um, and uh, his assistant director would come and talk about what might need to be adjusted here and there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But in both cases, did you feel like, did you come away from the experience like, oh, this is why they are the biggest movie stars in the world? Yes. Okay. Yes, no question. With Harrison, absolutely. And not just in that scene, but in the scenes in the Oval Office, uh, you know, that was clear. But and, and with Tom, the guy 
does not stop working and works in a way that makes everyone else want to work. It's not like, oh, I'm working hard and I don't like this. It's so hard. He works hard and he just gets more energy as he goes. It's quite astonishing. And it's it's infectious. You also did a great scene on the train with uh, Vanessa Redgrave, who we're obsessed with. And we're so sad they could never bring her back. I know. Always want, I know. You know. But uh, what was that? What was that like? To work with Vanessa Redgrave for thirty seconds, <laughs> is kind yes, of, it's it's kind of like understanding eternity in one millisecond. <laughs> kind of the same thing. She is. Uh, she was, and yeah, she was uh, strong and flirtatious. <laughs> And loved what she did and shared it beautifully. Yeah, it was it was it was awesome. It was uh, I mean it was it was you know I I wasn't doing sh- I was it was not a Shakespeare scene that we were doing, but she turns everything she would turn everything into. Um, I mean the word the suddenly had sixteen syllables to it somehow. I don't know how she did it, but she did that. She just gave this everything. This is what you were doing. It's like, well, this okay, is... fine. Well, she 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 turned everything into a beautifully reduced French sauce. <laughs> <laughs> when the movie came out, people thought it was confusing, which has always baffled us. Yeah. Oh, hey, get this. I had to go back to Skywalker Ranch three times. The first one. Okay, tell us about it. I had to go back three times because the job thing, the job thing, um, and they they were trying to figure they would screen it. I mean, I wasn't there for the screenings. I just know that I had to come back three times and redo the mission statement because people were confused. So you know, I go back to Los Angeles, and then three weeks later, you're going up to Skywalker Ranch and redo the front part again. Okay, fine. Uh, and then when they're done, and they gotta come back. You're coming back to do the front part again. We gotta we gotta hone that a little bit. So interesting. Yeah. Did, were you confused by it? I was not confused by it. Okay. Um, but, you know, I'm, I, I was there when they were putting the ingredients in the muffin. So, you know. <laughs> well, we're with you. We, we, we feel like it's been unfairly criticized. Like, I think it's just the right amount of complicated. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, but yeah. I, I mean, if it's complicated because you want it to be complicated, okay, well, that's, that's, that don't, that's just. You're just being nasty then. But if it's complicated because things are complicated and you're trying to understand how Ethan's mind works and what he has to deal with, then, you know, that's the genre, you know, it's like horror. It's so scary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, did anything surprise you about the finished movie? Because you're right. It does really have some wonderful De Palma flourishes, and part of those things are what I think kept people off kilter. But like, yeah, what surprised me about it were the two set pieces: the the break into the CIA, which was I call Sano, when there was, a, it, and I guess this it's kind of a, a feng shui kind of if if something was if the frame was right in some way that is ineffable, it would be Sano. And the break into the CIA specifically for me was a Sano set piece. I use the word Sano partly because of the sanitized environment that he had to go into, but also the way De Palma clearly has is a master at just tightening that screw ever so, and then tightening it quickly, and then it, will it break? Will the screw break? Will it go? You know, that was spectacular. And of course, the you know the, the train sequence uh, in the tunnel and the helicopter. I mean, come on. I mean, when have we seen that before? Pretty, pretty great. Yeah. So those two set pieces were extraordinary. And I hadn't seen those. I'd only read them. 
you know, I hadn't seen them. So to see those on the widescreen was uh, off the charts. I would argue that each iteration of this franchise is just better and better. But also no Kittredge until now. I mean, were you just like, come on, guys, I'm here? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm... no, no, I was happy. I mean, <laughs> Anthony Hopkins, are you kidding me? I want to see him. I want to see, I want to, I want to see them go back and do the first one verbatim and have Tony go in there and do whatever I would have to say. I would love to see that. Are you kidding? Absolutely. Sir Tony, you go. Did they ever talk to you about, because I it, that you were in the script for MI2 when it was Oliver Stone directing the movie. Yeah, well, Kittredge was part of it. Was there ever a discussion with you? Oh no, I burned my I burned my own bridge with that one. That that that's not. I I I've already exposed that story. I had I had a meeting with Paula Wagner after the filming of it because I I had elements you know that I wanted to add to Kittredge. I thought we could do this with him and do that with him. You know, <laughs> why are we going so narrowly with this character? I think you know blah 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 at lunch. And uh, I'm surprised I worked in the town again ever. <laughs> wow. Here I am. It's my second film. Uh, you know, I, I have horseshoes up my whatever to be in clear and present. And then I get lucky enough that Paramount hires me again for uh, one of the biggest blockbusters of 1996. And then I have a meeting with Paula Wagner and I kind of complain about what they might have done and what they hope they do next. And we, and she was very polite. We had the lunch and I thought about it the next day. And I thought, well, that's it. I might as well pack my bags and go back to the theater. Uh, because this is over for me here. I just, I just burned my bridge, but lo and behold, 25 years later, they. So it wasn't as much people not calling you. It's that Henry Cerny self-sabotaged <laughs> right after the first. Yeah. Is yeah, that a fair yeah, assessment? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. wow! I don't know. Well, again, I don't know what. I don't know why, but somehow I kept working. But I, I wasn't rude or anything. I wasn't mean. I was just like, I was just like, I, I, had, I had no idea what the real, what the reality, or I knew what the reality was, but I didn't know what the reality was. Frankly, uh, I just, um, yeah, I was just my way because I'd been in the theater. You know, I've been, I've done new plays and all of that, and you, you kind of, you bring your, you workshop the thing, and you and but. Uh, no, Henry, we, you were lucky to be in this thing. What, I'm not sure what uh, kind of. Uh, I'm just intimating. She might have thought of any number of a million things, but um, that might be why Kittredge wasn't Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I, they had options. They had optioned me for two, at least. But, uh, yeah, so. But that's fine. I mean, coming back 25 years later, I got to tell you, it's freaking juicy. And this is not the only project I did 25 years later. Uh, and we'll get back to that another time. But or, or, or we'll get back to that later, maybe. Interesting. Wow. We'll be back with more from Henry Cerny after the break. Okay, so talk us through your – Macquarie calls you, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. and says, you're back, baby. I get a call from my reps. I'm shredding documents, literally. I'm shredding the 10-year tax documents. They're 10 years old. It's time to go to the shredder with the boxes and shred that stuff. I still remember. I'm shredding. I get a call from Perry, my rep of 35 years at the time. Uh, Mission Impossible, Chris Macquarie wants to talk to you about Kittredge. And, of course, <laughs> okay, what's going on? What do, you, what do we got? And he said, no, seriously. Yeah, really? Okay. Well, what, what, what's the character? He says he, he doesn't know. He just wants to talk to you. Well, uh, mm, 
Okay. All right. <laughs> when? So, so soon after the next day, I have a chat with Chris. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm clearly somewhat amazed at Chris McQuarrie. Uh, and I are having a conversation after shredding my taxes and I'm a DIYer is probably making something in the garage, covering myself with sawdust or something the day before. Anyway, we're having a chat. And so what do you want to do with Kittredge? You want to bring him back? Well, we don't have a script necessarily, but we have an idea. We'd like to bring him back. And I've got some ideas and uh, it's been a while and I've been wanting to bring him back for a couple of episodes. And I think this is the one to bring him back. I really want to bring him back. Well, what do you want to bring? What do you want to do? Well, we're, we're going to work on that uh, when you get here. And, and I'm like, OK, wait a second. Why? Why is he? Why is he not telling me? what he wants to do with Kittredge, you know. <laughs> well, we're going to tie you to a back of a tractor trailer and we're going to drag you through cow manure for a while. <laughs> and then we're going <laughs> to then, then have the real villain spit on your whatever. Uh, no, that's not the case. The thing is they really do bring people in and let them and the yarn, if you will, the, the weave of the story blend and see how how tight a weave and how or how loose a weave or how how intricate a weave they can make using those two elements the 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 you know the, the behemoth which is the making of the film and the elements that show up being the thespians the props people the environment uh, and see how all that fits in and what can we use what can we do with all of that to make to make something really juicy. And, and they did. As a matter of fact, Angela Bassett was supposed to be in it. Yeah, I'm not sure you know that. And COVID happened and she couldn't. And and so Carrie Elways came in and Kittredge's part suddenly changed quite a bit. Go on. And I was thrilled. Uh, I don't think Kittredge was supposed to do, you know, um, um, uh, intone the mission statement. In seven at the beginning. Oh, wow. Uh, nor was he nor was he to close it out. But again, Macquarie saw what was going on. So did Tom. Clearly, um, I brought a certain energy to it. That is just the energy I bring. And it was used and massaged. And and you have what you have now because people listen as much as they talk. Uh, you know, Macquarie's a fantastic his mind is able to, as far as I'm concerned, and maybe because mind isn't at all, able to keep elements, many elements afloat and yet specifically in their place like electrons to a certain extent. When, he, when we had to change the story because of one thing or another, the new story he would tell us, or at least the new arc he would tell us of the story, was way better than anything he had planned before and was completely new and yet had elements of the old. And he was a master at not, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm stuttering all over the place. He would be super clear about all the elements and how they were gonna fit in. And some of them then fell apart as we were shooting. And lo and behold, he came back, okay, this is the movie now. This is the movie we have. And we'd have a half hour discussion, not half hour, we'd have a fantastic half hour monologue from Chris about what we were going to do now with this story. And it was exquisite every time. So Kittredge's role morphed into what it is now. It did not start that way. And how is that? How is that working uh, kind of environment for you? Is that something that you're galvanized by? At, no, no. At first, it's bizarre because you know, like 
Sir Tony, I want to read the script 500 times so that when I say something, I'm not thinking about what I'm saying. It's coming out. And all I'm what I'm thinking about is what I want from the person opposite me or what I want from whatever. And the lines will come out and that that's the way they come out. I'm out of the way. We're going to get T-shirts. These sides will self-destruct in five minutes uh, because we seriously because it was one day we got new sides. Seriously, every half hour. And the see, this was a 10 page scene. But. You know, we would only shoot certain sections of the scene because of the length of it and because Macquarie and Tom are so interested in what each actor can bring to a specific moment. Uh, and so you can, uh, I'll get to working with the fantastic Vanessa Kirby in a minute, but they will ask for 50 takes of a certain section. Just not, they won't ask for 50 takes. You know, you'll do a bunch and there'll be variety within that. And then you'll be asked, OK, well, do one for yourself and you'll do it. And usually when the director says do one for yourself means I'm done. I have what I want. You go ahead and have fun. Maybe there'll be something in it. Probably not. But, you know, go ahead, have fun. And, you know, just you can leave the, the soundstage feeling you got your take in. But with Chris, you would do your version. You say, oh, wow, that's cool. So based on that, you do another 25 takes. Wow. It's extraordinary. And at first, at first you might feel like, oh, I'm not getting it right. But you never, ever get that from Chris. That comes from the inside. Chris is always about what else is in there. What else do you want to show me? What else do you want to what else do you want to give us in the editing room? I mean, we're, you're going to be well taken care of. You know that, you know, that any nonsense is going to be on the floor. Uh, and maybe even some of your best bits will be on the floor. But the lousy bits are not making it into the movie, folks. So go ahead. You're taken care of. We're not screwing anybody around here. We want every character to be full, complex, because it just makes the film better. And so you're allowed to dig around. Uh, and there's time to do it, generally, unless the sun's coming down. That's, you know, rarely the case. Or unless the helicopter's running out of fuel. But, yeah, that's it's it's a great environment. And I, and Well, you want to talk about... Shooting the the scene with the community, though, I mean, what a what a gaggle of great actors there, huh? So yeah, here's the thing. Usually, it's a bunch of fast talking people. Who go, We've got to do this. We've got to do this thing's coming because people want to get the exposition over with, right? Mm-hmm. So, but McHugh has this idea. No, let's not do. That. We're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to lay it in, and we're not going to rush it. We're going to be as centered and as um, grounded as we can be about this. And I will give you 25 takes on that one line. Um, and you'll give it to me any number of ways you want it. And I'll, I'll nudge you or I'll ask you to nudge it this way and that way. And so when he gets into the editing room, editing room I imagine he will have a mosaic of options. Um, and Eddie's fantastic, of course, because you've seen the work. Proof is in the pudding. And everybody watches everybody and feels everybody do their thing. And nobody wants to hold back. Everybody wants to offer up what Chris is looking for. Um, I, nobody nobody walks out of the room going, I don't know, I had to do 50 takes. That was weird. I mean, what the heck? Everybody walks out thinking, 50 takes, wow, I, that was amazing. That one there, I had no idea I was going to do that. Or this, you know, uh, people are thrilled with the process Afterward, during, if you've never done it before, it's disconcerting uh, because there's a feeling that you have to get it right, but it has nothing to do with getting it right. The right will show up. Uh, It's not something that you aim for. It's something you arrive at and you arrive at right in the editing room 
not necessarily on the soundstage, although that's where you give uh, the element. Uh, but it's how the element is, again, put into the muffin, if you will, uh, that, that really gives it its juice or taste, flavor, whatever. Is there any competition there? Are you like, I'm going to smoke Charles Parnell out? I'm going to just give it all, all I got? No, absolutely. Okay. The only competition I have is within myself, and shame on me, but then who cares? I'm human. <laughs> there are two wolves, Henry, inside all of us. <laughs> That's right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> which reminds me, I have to, I have to, feed, I have to feed the bitter one. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, what could you have for us besides Henry Cerny? I mean, we have the full meal. Certainly you don't have any more surprises for us. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, having Henry Cerny in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, having him back in this franchise is a surprise enough. But, no, we've got more for everybody out there because in Rome we did junket interviews and we talked to, we sat down with... Palm Clementieff and Vanessa Kirby to talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So we did get into that a little bit with them. And so, uh, yeah, I think there's a little, like, maybe light spoilers in here, I guess. But uh, it's just mainly just talking about the experience of making this movie. And it's just great to hear more from Palm, as we obviously had our big interview with her. But this is our our first, you know, a little bit with uh, Vanessa. I guess we had Vanessa on the big cast Q&A as well. We've had everybody, man. We've just talked to everybody involved in this movie. It's been awesome. All right, let's get into it. And we'll be back afterwards. Vanessa, hi. We have to ask you, mm-hmm. how did you hi. play your co-star, Haley Atwell? Oh, right. I was like, what is it? Yeah. Um, how? God. Yeah. It was actually tricky because it was one of the first dialogue scenes we'd done in the whole film. So, luckily, I knew her really well, which was helpful because otherwise. You know, when I watched the movie this week, I thought, oh, my God, I got to watch all her scenes. And if only I'd had the gift of being able to watch all her scenes so that I could actually mm-hmm. play Grace, <laughs> you know, rather than, like, just trying to channel Haley a bit. But it was so fun, and it was really fun to play. I had the opportunity, you know, the surprising opportunity to play, um, uh, you know, this character that's so in control, kind of frustratingly in control, actually, and then play someone who's totally out of control. And it was really fun to kind of play those Two things at the same time. Well, she said in the you, same week. So she said you were her her rock on set. I guess. So were you just trying to get in good so you could just study her? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just using her my performance. <laughs> oh my god, I wish. I wish I'd have known about it when we when we got really close. We we got close because we were COVID happened the day just the day before we were due to start filming in Italy, and everyone you know had to come back. And then Haley and I lived near each other, so we trained with the train who also lived locally and trained socially distanced in the park. So we had a lot of runs during a very strange time and got to really bond and talk about everything. So by the time we came to filming, I'd already filmed the first, you know, the previous one. So I, I was able to just, you know, really talk a lot about the process and how you have to surrender and you might not know what's coming. You might do 50 takes and don't worry. It's not because you're bad. It's just because they're so brilliant. And they allow you to do so many things and try stuff and just have faith. And so, yeah, she was amazing. So, Pam, what was it like for you joining this Oh my circus. god, it was circus? Yeah, it's a traveling circus it in is. some ways because we go to so many different locations mm-hmm. and all around the world. So that was such an amazing experience. It was my dream to uh to join Mission Impossible and to to get to do all these crazy action scenes and 
And I felt really lucky to get to do this insane fight scene with Tom. And and now my, my only problem is to, I don't know how I'm going to be able to top that, you yeah. know, do a fight scene with Tom. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you seem like it's almost like a silent film performance. Like, yeah. I don't know how many words you speak in the movie, but it's not many. I mean, yeah, was that no. always the concept from the beginning? Yeah, that was, you know, I mean, oftentimes in, in action movies also, when you, when you speak, it's that you give, uh, it's expositional, you know? And for my character, uh, she doesn't need that. She just kicks ass and tries to kill people, you know? <laughs> of course, like sometimes you need to speak. Sometimes it's better to say nothing and yeah. just do the job, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And I just, I, I love to play with kind of like the very quiet and, you know, um, side of the character and then like just going completely wild and insane. Yeah. You know, so it's completely like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you worked on these movies for so long and now you've seen it. What, did, what was your reaction when you finally saw everything put together? Oh my God, I saw the movie like two days ago. I was just blown away. I could uh, hardly process it. So I was kind of like silent for a few minutes. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's incredible to watch it on big screen. The story is amazing. The characters are incredible. The action is mind blowing. It's just, what a trip. It's just the me best Mission Impossible movie ever and it's just I don't know how they, they, they did it again yeah about you Vanessa oh yeah I mean wild and especially because you know you get to see all these stunts you've heard about and you hear of stories of them but then you actually get to watch them and it's like being an audience member for me it's thrilling yeah amazing thank you guys both so much yes. thank, so you. Good thank you, you. Good to see you again. Nice to meet you. You. thank <laughs> you guys And that's it for us for now. For now. But can I, t can I tell people what they should do in between episodes, maybe? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, one thing you can do is like, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening to it on Spotify, wherever you're listening to it, give a, a like, give it a rating, give us some feedback. It helps us out a lot. Uh, the other thing you can do is follow us on social media at Light the Fuse Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and follow both of us on there while you're at it. Why not, right, Charles? I mean... Why not? Yeah, sure. Uh, Charles <laughs> is Charles Hood with two zeros instead of O's. And I am Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt. And what else, Charles? We need to remind people that they can see all the movies on Paramount Plus right now, all the earlier Mission Impossible movies, and that they can watch yes. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning exclusively in theaters. Uh, what else, Charles? Yeah, and uh, also, of course, uh, we got to say that this is only part one of our Henry Cerny interview, so you got to come back for part two because there's plenty more to talk from him. We've got amazing interviews coming up. We cannot wait to share with you and so much more. Uh, so excited. And uh, yeah, go see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 exclusively in theaters right now. And we'll be back with more from Henry Cerny coming up. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. 